Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, Suckers for Punishment. I'm joined now by our panel, Ben Thomas from Excel PR, political commentator David Slack, and News Hub political editor Tavro O'Brien. Thanks for your time this morning. We'll bring in our panel now, Lila Hare, unionist and former MP, joined us in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, and Liam here is a lawyer and National Party member in our studio in Palmerston North. Kia ora kōrua. Let's talk politics then with Ben Thomas, who's with me here in the Auckland studio. Good morning to you, Ben. Hi, Guy. Sue Bradford and Professor Andrew Geddes also with us this morning. Good morning to both of you. In a polarised landscape, political commentators are among the most roundly and ferociously criticised figures in public life, often causing a few headaches for their editors. When I first took the job, I spoke to Eric Jansen, who was the editor of the Dominion Post at the time, and I sort of said to him, I don't know what editors do, what should I do? And he said, well, most of the time you'll just be answering complaints. But are news outlets seeing political commentary as a way to fire up the comment pages rather than an important part of public discourse? Political debate in a whole lot of countries that you could name is deliberately trying to break up that sense of community. And we have to resist that with every fibre in our bodies. We have to resist that. And as for the commentators themselves, why do these political insiders bother sticking their necks out? Tracy Watkins is a former political editor for Stuff who's now editor-in-chief of the Sunday Star Times. And I began by asking her, what's the point of it all? To me, the point of political commentary is to analyse what is being done on the political stage and put it in the context of both what you as a political reporter or journalist is aware of from behind-the-scenes conversations, but also your institutional memory. And I think, you know, this is where there's often a lot of confusion with people. They think that political commentary and political analysis is opinion. And they often mistake what a reporter is saying. This is why the government's doing this. This is why they're saying that. Or this is why the opposition is doing this or saying that. They think that's the reporter's opinion. And I think that's quite a different uh, thing, for instance, to when we will run an opinion piece from, say, Neil Zone or David Farrar, both of whom, are, you know, their political stripes are well known and they're speaking from the background of their political experience. But, but for a political reporter, it is really about analysis and context. Now, Tracy was talking there largely about reporters, but what about political commentators, people often outside the media who appear on shows like Q&A or 9 to Noon to give their reckons on the week or the month just gone? People like Matthew Hooten, Neil Jones, Stephen Mills or David Farrer, not David Ferrier. What value do they add? They have an inside knowledge of, you know, they understand the inner workings. If, for instance, you're talking about David Cormack or Matthew Hooshan, you know, they've been involved in the backroom. They know what happens when the political operatives are making decisions. They know what sort of conversations have been had before we see what comes out in public. So that actually is why I quite like using those sort of commentators because they offer us a perspective. They lift the lid, if you like. They, they allow us to see under the hood and see what's really happening uh, in the machinery of government. I think, you know, there was a great piece that Ben Thomas did for the Sunday Star Times, for instance, and I'm, you know, I am talking as the editor of the Sunday Star Times rather than the editor of Stuff. But Ben did a great piece for us about, you know, what goes on in the back room when a major crisis happens. 
And actually, I did have a few columns from Stephen Joyce as well, the former National Party campaign manager and finance minister. And he also wrote about this is how we would have handled a crisis. He also brings into that a lot of opinion, and it's, it's ideological opinion. And I don't have a problem with that. That's why we label these pieces. We add disclaimers about who this person is and where they're coming from. But I do actually think that there is value in having commentators with that background because of the insight that they can offer us about what's happening behind the scenes. The problem here, of course, is that just about anyone who's knowledgeable enough about the inner machinations of politics to be a political commentator is probably in some way professionally involved with politics. Just a couple of months ago, we actually had an interesting example of this. A prominent political commentator says Simon Bridges' decision to call a vote on his leadership of the National Party was an act of political suicide. Bay of Plenty MP Todd Muller has put his hand up for the leader's job, but Matthew Hooten told Morning Report Mr Muller's supporters would likely have lost their nerve had the vote not been called. I think it um, was another example of the poor political judgment that has plagued his leadership, quite frankly. Um, I think Simon Bridges' move yesterday was probably one of the most extraordinary acts of political hurry-carry that we've seen. A couple of days later... Simon Bridges has been toppled as the leader of the National Party with the caucus installing a relative unknown, Todd Muller, to take over heading into the election. And a couple of days after that... Media trainer and former journalist Janet Wilson has been appointed to be National Party leader Todd Muller's new chief press secretary. And lobbyist Matthew Hooten has joined the leader's office on a short-term contract as part of his communications team. And this whole series of events led to quite a bit of outrage in political circles. What some people felt was that they'd been, they were worried they'd been cheated. Mm. That's Linda Clark, a political commentator, former political editor, former host of RNZ's Nine to Noon, and now a partner at law firm Denton's Kensington Swan. You know, that essentially when he had been advocating being critical about Simon Bridges, that he was actually preparing the case for Muller. I mean, funnily enough, I mean, I, I don't think I did any commentary during that period, but if I'd done any commentary, I would have been equally critical of Bridges um, and probably would have said pretty much the same thing as as Matthew did, and, you know, no one would have been paying me to do it. But I think your point is, is the most interesting there. I mean, the, the commentators that really grate for me are not the Matthew Hootons or the Neil Jones or any of those people who are kind of in the game. The commentators, and I think they are political commentators, even though they would deny it vehemently, that irritate me, you know, are um, the Mike Hoskins, the Kate Hawksby's, the people who know very little about the subjects that they often talk about. Uh, you know, it's a, they sort of skate over and they take no responsibility for the damage that they do on the way through. So, you know, one minute they, you know, the government's doing a terrible thing and the next minute they're advocating for the government to do exactly what it is that they said they didn't want the government to do a week before. Now, that's political commentary, right? Mm. And that's much more damaging because, you know, those kind of commentators carry a much greater audience. The days when those kind of broadcasters, who are great broadcasters, by the way, Mm. uh, but the days when those kind of broadcasters were employed to engage with an audience Um, in just an entertaining way. That's long gone. I mean, they're meant to be opinion pushers now. Um, And those opinions are political commentary. A further gripe many people have, especially on social media, is that the same old people turn up 
all the time, giving the same old reckons. But joining us now is political commentator Ben Thomas. Ben Thomas from Excelton PR. Ben Thomas is also with us. Ben Thomas. Ben Thomas has got a point here. Ben Thomas is a former National Party press secretary. Political commentators Josie Pagani and Ben Thomas. So, naturally. Hello, Ben Thomas. Hello, Emil. Of the doubtless many and varied insults that your political commentary has uh, drawn over the years, is there one that particularly sticks in your mind? I guess the most common or off-putting one that I hear is, you know, National Party shill, uh, which suggests that I've got ties or formal allegiances or even informal loyalties to particular parties, um, which don't really exist in reality um, and tend to just be a sort of a kind of talking point that's been sort of repeated and repeated often enough that uh, people who you know, solely get their news through Twitter or Facebook comment sections um, seem to take to heart. What do you consider to be the point the point of political commentary more broadly? People dropping their reckons about what politicians and political parties are doing. Like, what is the point of commentary? <laughs> I would say there are two answers to that. The first one is that, you know, ideally the political commentators you know, know a bit more about how things work, to put it very broadly, than the listener often will. And they can provide valuable context and background. Uh, If you're wondering how it can be that the government can uh, pass a policy that everyone is tested at the border, staff and quarantinees, and then that doesn't happen, uh, you know, a political commentator who's worked in that area might be able to explain uh, some of the breakdowns that can happen between a government department and a minister. They can explain, you know, what the minister could or should have been doing and just sort of, you know, provide that sort of detail and make it a bit more concrete in ways that listeners might not otherwise know. You can shed light on things that have been portrayed as abnormal and explain that, you know, actually that is very common. Or you can do it the other way and say that things that people think are just business as usual and no big deal are actually very unusual, uh, which they may not have known otherwise. Um, I think the other aspect is entertainment. You know, I, I think we'd probably be fooling ourselves if we said that going on radio or TV and saying National's not doing well or Labor's doing very well added a great deal to the discourse that people didn't already know. Uh, But people do seem to, you know, people do enjoy talking about politics. And this entertainmentification of political commentary is something that sticks in Linda Clark's craw as well. That applies to the news media full stop, but in an interesting way, right? Because, I mean, news services like the one where, like this one, this one that you and I are talking as part of, Mm -hmm. They're a reaction to that, right? So they're trying to correct the balance, and there's a whole bunch of those happening all over the media landscape, which is why, um, you know, ultimately I'm pretty optimistic. But um, the entertainment quota on, or the entertainment factor in politics now is so strong. And and if I look back on, I mean, instantly I'm going to sound like I'm a million years old, but one of my sort of regrets of my time as political editor for TV1 was that I so willingly went along with the introduction of that sort of entertainment show busy kind of value. Now, at the time, we had no idea what, of you know, it's, a, it's the law of unintended consequences. We had no idea um, that, you know, we introduced live crosses, for instance, on um, TV One when I was political editor. So I did the first one. And when we started... The, that we genuinely thought it was about adding value for the viewer. 
And, you know, they were scary things and not many people did them. And, you know, there was a lot of thought went into them and exactly the questions you were asked, they were very heavily scripted ahead of time. All of that stuff that's all gone out the window now because now everything is done as much as possible with live crosses. But ultimately what happens in a live cross for political news is a kind of updated version of the Roman circus. So the newsreader says, you know, so whether it's Tova or whether it's Jessica or whoever it is, the newsreader says, thumbs up or thumbs down. Do they live? Do they die? Mm. And the political editor often was, you know, an hour's preparation because, you know, something might have happened at four o'clock. They're there, they're put on the spot, and they need to be attractive, entertaining, fast. They need to be hyperbolic because they've got to get people to, you know, look up to the screen, pay attention. And all of that devalues what's actually happening behind the scenes. And it changes the shape of political news. And that's a pity. And and where does that trajectory end? Well, it ends with Fox News, right? Like we shouldn't pretend that it doesn't. So we're always trying in this country, our broadcasters are responsible, and they're always trying to hold back from that. But unfettered, that's where it goes. This dramatic adversarial head-butting sort of coverage is really big in the USA, probably not the best place to look for inspiration for measured public debate. I asked Tracy Watkins whether this political game element maybe diluted the seriousness of political decision-making. I don't think anyone can be in any doubt at the moment how serious politics is to their lives. I mean, we're seeing that with people sort of turning into the 1pm presses, for instance. Everyone's a political journalist at the moment. I do think readers are interested in the personalities of politicians. And I I say that because I think at the end of the day, a lot of what we judge politics on is about character and it's about judgment and it's about empathy. And those are all personality. You know, those are the things that make up a person. And so I don't, you know, when people say it's too personality driven, I, I disagree with that because, you know, voters do look for qualities in politicians that are all about personality. A long-standing way of dealing with this has been disclosures at the end of the piece. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're right, so-and-so has done work for XYZ or is volunteering for yeah. so-and-so political party. But these disclaimers do tend to appear at the ends of pieces. Do you think maybe adding disclosures at the beginning of a piece would maybe help to assuage some of the anger because you would know where the author is coming from from the first word? I mean, that's a legitimate point to make. I guess as a news hound or a news, you know, as a journalist, you always want to go with the, the newsy angle up front and the hook. And if you get into sort of like three, you know, explanations up front and context and all those things, that you lose that hook. But I accept that that might be one way of making it clear to people you know, turn the page. If you're if you're if you're a Labour Party voter and you don't like reading about National Party things, turn the page. If you're a National Party person who who doesn't want to read about Jacinda, you know, I guess that's one way. By the same token, I actually, you know, I think we should all be robust enough to read opinions that we don't agree with, because sometimes you can change your mind. Not about who you might vote for, for, but maybe just about a particular issue. Maybe if putting the disclaimer up top was a way of getting people to read it without sort of reacting badly, I'm not sure. 
Often commentators will go to elaborate lengths to justify or condemn decisions made by politicians, sometimes showcasing remarkable mental dexterity to talk through their thought process. And Ben Thomas says this is a bit of a trend to look at political decisions kind of like a, a literature student analysing a poem. To read the entrails, yeah. I, look, I, I think that's a tendency that you should try and avoid. I actually think one of the... One of the things where you know informed commentators can add a bit of value is lowering the temperature on you know conspiracy theories or you know trying to draw too many complicated dots together, if only because generally if you've had a bit of experience working in uh, parliament or government, you know how hard it is to execute a plan with one moving part, let alone multiple ones. The other thing is that political commentators. You know, like like anyone who's trying to analyse something from the outside, will often be thinking about uh, an idealised form of what they're talking about. You know, you will often sort of think, well, if they were smart, they'd do this. Now, of course, human beings, including politicians, are imperfect and they don't always make the right decisions. For instance, after the revelation that Michelle Boke had been involved in releasing private information during uh, covid I remember I was asked, you know, do you think anyone else in National knew anything about this? You know, when when Todd Muller had indicated or suggested that, that was the case. Uh, and I said, no, I, I don't think they do, because they would be aware that, you know, Michelle Boke is taking the fall from this, and, and so is Hamish Walker. And if anyone else has any knowledge, you know, that's going to come out as they as they exit the building. Now, as it turned out, my reasoning was right, and my prediction was wrong. Uh, because we then heard Michelle Bogue on the way out implicate Michael Woodhouse. And so that was probably an example of where I assumed Todd Muller knew about it, you know, knew as much about politics as I did. And Linda Clark also reckons there's a bit of self-appointed pressure on political commentators to seem like, you know, all-knowing oracles who can read meaning into the most innocuous things. Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to the Roman circus analogy I was talking about earlier. I mean, ultimately, that's the question that you're asked principally as a, as a political commentator, because time is short, right? I mean, I don't know how long we've been talking, but it's a whole lot longer than any political commentator gets to talk about, you know, the release of a new policy or, you know, whether there's going to be a leadership spill or anything else. I mean, generally, most political commentary is conducted in a matter of seconds. Yeah. And um, and in that period of time, you need to get straight to the point, right? And the and the point is, you know, winners losers. Is he going to survive? Isn't he going to survive? Everything's reductive, right? Ultimately, you get back to the inevitable New Zealand journalism question: Will you resign? I mean, it's that it, it is utterly simplistic, and it doesn't serve anybody well. I mean, the print commentators have a lot more time um, to craft what it is that they're saying and to get to sort of communicate some of the nuance um, and subtlety that inevitably exists in any policy or any, um, you know, political saga. Broadcast journalists, so your radio and your television broadcasts, simply don't have that luxury and and nine times out of ten are commentating um, live to air. And, you know, I can tell you as someone who's done that over a long period of time, sometimes you say stuff that is actually more than you mean and... You know, you you finish the slot, and you you know you put down the phone, or the camera turns off, and you think to yourself, oh, you know, I just 
I pushed that one out too far. Uh, and, and you don't even, you know, you never meant to do that. But it happens, right? Lots of people seem to live for politics and, you know, almost more specifically for political conflict online and have absolutely no qualms about straight out abusing people to their digital face. What would your advice be to people in terms of like dealing with political commentary that they don't like? Um, well, first of all, be selective, right? So um, I absolutely loathe personal abuse and I actually don't like feral political coverage now, which I know is ironic because I was, you know, I was pretty feral by the time I left. That's what the institution does to you, which you've seen a whole lot of female politicians talking about that, you know, in their valedictories. It's a rough place. It makes you rough. And I've been out of it a long time, and I I look at it now through a different lens. Hmm. I don't see any reason to be abusive uh, with anyone, whether you agree with what they're doing or not. I also feel less and less tied to, you know, one point of view. I do actually think that the best debate is somewhere in the middle where you might be able to say, look, I don't like that, I don't agree with you, but have you thought about this? And what you want from the other person is to say, well, yeah, I have thought about that actually, and I don't agree with that either, but have you thought about this? That's what we need to do. We have to engage with each other politically in this in this society and, and in our communities, and it's, and it's important we do it in, you know, as Michelle Obama says, they might go low, we need to go high. It's really important we keep that. One of the reasons we had such a positive response, community response to the first wave of COVID is because we could all look out for each other and we could actually see the value of our community working as a community. Political debate in in a whole lot of countries that you could name is deliberately trying to break up that sense of community. And we have to resist that with every fibre in our bodies. We have to resist that. And the way to resist that is to avoid those extremists, to block the people who use um, abuse, um, to block people who um, are, frankly, vile to other people, and to actively look for those people who want to have genuine and fruitful and constructive conversations. Um, you know, I, I I don't get a lot of crap in my Twitter line um, because if you come on there and you say something revolting about somebody else, you're out. Mm. I'm not interested in, in hearing your point of view. Um, and I think we all have to do that. But what we have to be careful about is that we do want to have people that we're engaging with who disagree with us um, because... You know, that's what you have to find the common ground with the people who think differently to you. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Adrian Holley and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Linda Clark, Tracy Watkins and Ben Thomas. Mate wa.